Four Corners podcast. Hello and welcome everyone to the next episode of the Four Corners podcast with your host, Klisman Marathi. And on this episode, we have someone who was actually introduced to me by our last guest, um, Savas Savori. And they have been friends for quite a while, I guess. And he mentioned this would be a really good guest to have on the show. So we have Chris Tinker on the show with us today. Chris is a founding partner of Libra Investment Services, an FCA-regulated advisory business, advising institutional investors on global equity market valuation, stock selection and risk analysis, and related macro events. So quite a lot, very valuable services he provides. And I'd like to welcome Chris on the show. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Chris. Wonderful. So in our preparations for this podcast, you mentioned a couple of very interesting points and themes to discuss today. And given our audience, our chief investment officers, family offices, and you know, um, financial players in the markets, uh, we have some really good topics to start off with. And since we also discuss issues relating to geopolitical risk, that's an area that you have quite strong and interesting opinions on. And when it comes time to the investment landscape and pricing geopolitical risk, is there any thoughts you can give on the best practice and perhaps where the markets are doing it wrong and ways that they can correct? I, I think the idea of there being a best practice environment is, is, is an interesting start point, but it suggests that there is a, an accepted process that has been operating in the past, which we should continue to operate in the future. And I think one of the big messages actually about current investment conditions is that things are changing often dramatically and that it's almost the wrong way to approach it to say this is how we should be doing it mm -hmm. because actually we should be looking at the new information flows we're receiving. We should be looking at the new investment opportunities against a backdrop where we've got levels of information disclosure that we simply haven't had historically. We've got um, speed of communication of news and events that is changing the way people are responding to anything happening anywhere in the world in a way that even 10 years ago you didn't. If you think back to the, um, uh, the, the nuclear plant in 2011 in Fukushima, the, uh, the potential market crisis that evolved from that was something where an event on the other side of the world was seen to have economic and market in, uh, repercussions that we really hadn't had an event to judge that by so people going with well, three island how do we think about this you know do we do we think that there is a, a global consequence of this and ironically um, after that Germany scrapped its nuclear plans and had a much more significant impact on policy than perhaps we'd even realized it really kicked off an awful lot more than you thought so um, we're now in the going into the world of um, alternative energy against the backdrop of mechanization and um, mobilization of manufacturing in Asia, which is taking those directions in the opposite direction. So when you're talking about geopolitical risk, what you're really beginning to understand is that even though you talk from the center and the UN puts out its climate change goals and everybody's talks the talk about Paris Accords and all the rest of it, China and India, and to a lesser extent Germany, major manufacturing industrial bases are still using high levels of carbon-based energy in a way that is seemingly disregarding that. So to pretend that that's a risk mm -hmm. that you have to worry about would be to presume that the market is going to follow the best practice of the UN's guide 
guiding um, tenets, if you like, of, of, of policy, and that you should invest on that basis. When in reality, the best practice is not to think that there is a way of engaging with geopolitical risk in China, but to say risks in China are about understanding risks in China. They're not about some best practice concept of how we should engage as investors with China. It's about understanding China first and foremost, or indeed understanding what's going on in the US, mm-hmm. because the US economic situation is vastly different than we might have thought it was going to be three or four years ago. And policies that are being pursued there, the shifts in emphasis towards where um, economic stimulus and growth are coming from, these are these are much more important to understand as an investor than they perhaps might appear to be uh, from somebody that's sitting, you know, 5,000 or 15,000 miles away from New York. There's, there's, a, there's a big, big difference when you're in America to understand what's going on there, as there is indeed a big difference to what's going on in Tokyo. If you're sitting in Tokyo or you're sitting in Asia, then there is sitting in London or sitting in New York where you're just assuming things are staying the same, but the fact that they're not becomes a very important thing to take into account when you're making risk decisions. Mm, I certainly hear you there, Chris, because I find that even before we started this podcast today, we had a chance to speak before. And there are certain investors who have a great understanding and appreciation of geopolitics and some that think of it as a fringe effect that doesn't really impact them too much because they may not be investing in emerging markets or frontier markets. So they invest in more developed markets and therefore their risks are, are, are hedged by their understanding of the world. And given that, you know, you can't speak about geopolitical risk without speaking about China, it's sort of, sort of the seven degrees of separation. Eventually, you'll get to how China influences your investment decision. How do you see from your, your, your work over the last 35 years or so of perceptions on you, on you market players like China? Do you think the investment world fully understands the impact and the, and the complex nature of, of how China is developing on their, on their uh, investments? Or do you think there's a lack of understanding because maybe it's over there somewhere and if it doesn't impact us here directly, then we shouldn't really be thinking about it that deeply? Well, it, it's interesting because I first went to China in the, uh, the mid 90s, um, a lot later than perhaps ideally I would have liked to have done. I was studying mm-hmm. uh, economic history of China back in the mid 80s. So, you know, a decade on before I actually managed to spend any time in, in China. And uh, when I came back from China, it was it was it was a classic story. I sat down with a, uh, with a mainland Chinese colleague of mine and uh, he, he had one of those wise heads on young shoulders. And he said to me, um, so what do you think about China? And so just from an anecdotal point of view, I just started talking about what had surprised me, what had engaged me, what I thought was going on based on my, you know, albeit historic understanding of, of development and, and so on. And uh, so he interrupted me and said, um, so presumably you just want to write a book about it now, do you? I said, there's so much you could say. And he said, okay, that's interesting. And he asked me the same question after I've been to China a few times. And he said, have you got to the postcard yet? And I kind of looked at him, he said, well, the first time you think you can write a book, the next time you think you can write a paper, the third time you think you can write a postcard, because the more you know, the more you appreciate you don't know, the more humble you become about the knowledge that you need to make the decision. And what that means is you listen to people 
you make judgments as best you can, but you don't try and assert your own view on what should be happening. And it's true that the further away you are from China, the more certain you seem to be about what's going on as far as journalists or commentators mm -hmm. are concerned. Mm -hmm. I don't pretend to know anything like as much as I did when I was living in Hong Kong, when mm -hmm. I was very close to China, um, about what's going on there. But I, I monitor it from a broader perspective, recognizing that you need to do your research. You don't just take one perceived opinion. You don't display a degree of certainty and conviction about what China is doing in any particular area. What you do is you look at what information you can gain to make the best decision you can with information about China being part of that process. Mm. I think if you really want to be heavily engaged and invested in China, it's very difficult to do that remotely. You have to have a much bigger network locally you need to be engaged with the with the sense of what's going on day to day as indeed you do in a lot of investment environments so you know the further away we are from an event the more respect we have to have for the fact that we may not know everything we need to know and so therefore we have to be careful about just sweeping assumptions that this is what they did last time or this is what they're now doing again or this is what this investment group thinks happening so therefore that's how I'm going to react. Look at yeah. what people who are putting money to work do is always a good guide. And when you look at where the money flows have been going, China's view on the world is not one of wanting to conquer the world like some imperial uh, empire. China's view on the world is to make sure it's got access to the world for its own benefit. But that's actually no different from the view of any, any other country, country yeah, like the US, for example. Like Britain, the British Empire, we come out of Brexit with a view that says we have to establish our links with the rest of the world. Well, of course, we have to establish our links with the rest of the world. But the mindset we're approaching for is to say so that we can benefit. Mm. Now, China's view is we want to establish our links with the rest of the world so that we can benefit. And if you're on the end of that conversation, you say, OK, well, how do we benefit? You know, how does... You know, how does Africa benefit from Chinese investment? Um, you know, how does Africa benefit from US investment? These are the same question mm. for, the, for the policymakers. Yet somehow, if you pivot it to say, because China and America both want to have power and influence in a part of the world, that somehow if China wants it, it's bad, but somehow if America wants it, it's good. You know, that isn't taking into account what the, the country that's caught in the middle of that conversation might think. Um, and so to the extent where you want to understand what China is doing and why, think about the Trump um, administration's approach to China and limitations of control over um, dialogue initially, the whole Chinese Communist Party mantra that's going on from that administration and has a different spin on it and a different twist to it under the Biden administration. But nevertheless, China is a competitor in so many areas. And one of the big things, whether it's about 5G and technology or whether it's about um, military grade uh, exports, one of the big things that America is concerned about is competition in cutting edge technology from China. That's what a competitor should be aware of. Mm -hmm. But to pretend that China is somehow cheating in this area or is somehow operating illegally isn't really representing anything other than that, that that wish to do down your competitor. It doesn't really reflect the 
economic benefit to a third party, for example, doing business with China as opposed to third party doing business with America. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember that the the narrative that comes out of US policymaking regarding China may have a very different complexion on it from a political establishment in another part of the world. Yeah. Um, Australia's relationship with China is very different to America's, yet Australia is being pressured to adopt the same policy approach to China as America does because of its relations with America. You know, people kind of getting stuck between China and America are finding it very difficult to, to have to go one way or another. And in reality, I think China's operations in the Pacific um, and America's operations in the Pacific will continue to have these tensions. But as investors, you know, I'm not seeing this leading to an escalation of anything other than rhetoric um, at this stage, but that's definitely a geopolitical risk that investors will continue to have on the radar screen. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the point of, you know, the more you know, the more you don't know. And with your colleague mentioning in the first visit to China, you said you could have written a book and then maybe an article, and then maybe a postcard. And then maybe it would just be a thought in your mind or a tweet, because the more you know or the more you learn, the more you d- discover how much more you need to learn to make to make an assessment of what the situation is, because everyone has their own bias in any situation and they see it through their own lens, which uh, which brings up some false assumptions of a place, especially in the early days. Saying that, do you think there are any major false assumptions that, and also when you say investor, there are different kinds of investors, of course. You can't paint an investor in with, with one brush. It depends on sort of the kind of investment that they're putting into it. Um, it depends on what part of the world they're coming from. It depends on their history of working in a place in there and the way that they think about the long-term aspects of their investment. But are there any major false assumptions that you hear in your circles about the not only of China but the the, the the progression and the change of the Asian markets as time has passed that you think you'd want to set straight or you want to clarify from your own point of view on how you see it? I I, I think the relationship when I in the in the nineties when I was working in um, uh, a lot more in in and out of the region. Um, and I was in I was in uh, in Asia in '98 during the uh, the Asian credit crisis. Being a being a credit analyst in in Asia in 1998 was a very interesting experience. I can tell you. However, we had the entire sort of emerging market, developed market split for investment decision making was around the idea that there was an integrating supply chain coming from Asia, integrating into a global economy bear in mind that china wasn't even in the wto mm. um, until the beginning of the 21st century and even though the accession towards wto was meant that china was being treated as an emerging market then and one of the u.s complaints is it's still treated as an emerging market but quote unquote it isn't an emerging market there is still an investor perception that china and north asia in general are contingent plugins into a global um environment supply chain um and then you look at something like what's happening in japan now um you look at how the the traditional um trading houses and the the, the very large conglomerates the the, the traditional zabatsu you look at how they're they're actually creating their own supply infrastructure within asia to create a larger more integrated economic platform 
that includes not just manufacturing, not just food distribution, but it's including a you know, much more digital world. It's not the old Mitsubishi heavy industry as much as establishing much greater and deeper links across a very large portion of the world with very large population then, uh, growth um, with levels of demand and activity that mean that Asia is becoming a more integrated um, digital as well as physical um, uh, landscape. And the West hasn't really picked this up. Mm -hmm. Most people in the West have, have still seen this what this sort of manufacturing workshop of the world sitting in Asia to feed the demands in the West. But you reverse that process and say, where is the middle class growing fastest? You know, the idea of the middle class growing to be a third of the population of China is something that Sav, I know, talked about. You know, when I was uh, looking at India, you know, the story of India is India, India is the market of tomorrow and always will be because they just don't seem to quite get their act together. But the demand patterns that are there, the idea of this emerging Indian middle class, it's fine until you realize the definition of the Indian middle class back in the 90s was your middle class if you have a refrigerator in your house. That's that the, there's a relative shift, in other words. Yeah. But now the middle class in India or the, you know, the wealthy um, uh, urban uh community in, in, in India, in China, in, in large parts of Southeast Asia, you know, are as wealthy as their counterparts in the West, if not more so, mm -hmm. to the extent that they're growing incomes quickly, their demands and interests for 5G technology or for um, services or, or infrastructure or spending, you know, the, the, the growth in robo-advisor financial business in, in the Indian subcontinent is massive huge by comparison to anything that we've anticipated. So these domestically generated demand patterns and markets are available. You need to make sure if you're investing in them, you're recognizing they themselves have growth dynamics that are different from the old visualization of a, of a plug into a third party demand. And we wanted to buy into, into the, the businesses that were benefiting from um, you know, growth in, in, in the Western, uh, Western economies. And I think that failure of investment infrastructure to, to really pick up and to still actually have this emerging market category as if somehow, you know, the, the frontier markets where you still have major concerns about corporate governance and liquidity, um, central bank policy, capital market risk, as well as corporation exposure and you know political risk all of those traditional em worries it's quite hard just to say well i'm going to treat frontier markets and emerging markets as a collective basket versus the rest mm. when we're really beginning to move into a world where actually the greater integration i think one of the big stories that perhaps people aren't particularly picking up on is this greater integration that japan and china have as they're moving from this sort of manufacturing to services from physical to digital world, you know, these large institutions that operate in Japan and in the United States, uh, sorry, and in China, you know, the, the link-ups and the deals that are taking place with the likes of, you know, of, ten, of Tencent um, and, um, and, the, and, the, and the large Sobu uh, trading houses in, in Japan, 
you know, this is the region that um, Otoshio and Mitsubishi and these kind of companies are being invested in now by Warren Buffett, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, he is he is recognizing that the the skill set, the experience, the understanding of these trading operations in Japan, being able to access this market I've just been describing, is probably significantly greater than anybody in the West appreciates in terms of its potential generation of what we ultimately all invest in, which is cash flow. Yeah. You know, you've got demand, you've got integration, infrastructure, you've got an awful lot going on here. Um, and that really then becomes a very important message to take away. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there, especially as the world changes and it develops. We see, as you mentioned, a growing middle class in places where the middle class was non-existent even maybe 20 years ago, and it's compounding. And they're going to be asked for the same products and services as the West does. So the manufacturing houses then need to shift to other places where maybe their middle classes haven't developed as much to, for it to be cost-effective to, 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 to meet the demand, growing demand globally, especially in, the, especially in Asia. And with these changes and these challenges, naturally technology is the leader in helping at least understand these challenges better and hopefully providing solutions to them. And from your background, you're not only an investor, but you've, you're also an author. You've, uh, you, you've co-published or you've, you, you've published certain pieces and research articles and, and books too. Where do you see, how do you see the role or the development of, because technology in the, in, in sort of in the more, in the real economy, if you want to call it, our face, help, help to help uh, combat structural changes that need, need to happen. But in the investment world, you have macro technologies and ways to understand these developments, which are also very necessary. Can you speak to what kinds of technologies you see being the most useful for an, an investor currently to understand how these changes are happening and also how best to profit from these changes uh, because big data needs to be contextualized you can't just have big numbers without them making sense and a lot of data is there just for the sake of it but adding them into your into your um sort of risk profile or understanding how you want to behave isn't always necessary so what would you do or how, how would you tackle this topic of technology? It, it, it's, it's an increasingly important issue when the, when the noise and the, and the narrative from the markets is dominated by big data, alternative data, this suggestion that data is the new oil and that somehow it's, a, it's the valuable commodity that everybody wants. Five years ago, there was a lot of data that people were picking up and were using because they would go along to a company and say, can I see data on, you know, what was called exhaust data? It's sort of coming out of your process and I can get some insight on that mm -hmm. uh, with that data. And that data was made basically available for free. But now suddenly people are saying, oh, like I monetize data and you have data science teams in every large corporation who are analyzing every bit of their internal data. And one of the problems is when you analyze all the data coming inside your internal business, you realize that a lot of it doesn't talk to each other for a good reason, because mm -hmm. there's data that comes from one business that's been put together in one way versus data coming from another business that's been put together in a completely different way. You try and smash these two things together. And 
all you get is noise and confusion. You don't get any insight or elevation. Um, you know, being somebody who works with data all the time, one of the reasons that when I set up my, my valuation business, what, what I was doing was I'd been working with analysts who had different ways of valuing companies. So the technology analyst in Taipei had a completely different way of analyzing a company than the property analyst in the Philippines. Fine. The guy in Paris who's, who's, who's analyzing Saint-Gobain has a different means of uh, analyzing international companies than the guy in, in New York. Fine. However, if I'm having to make a decision that says, therefore, I want to invest in company X in the US and company Y in, um, in, in Asia and company Z in Europe, well, how am I going to achieve that if people have different approaches to valuation, have different information approaches? Well, I set out to create a standardized approach to, to valuing businesses and companies, which is what I now operate. Mm -hmm. But it's the same as big data within an organization, let alone across organizations. Mm -hmm. Unless you have a sense of what that data can and should be telling you, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to normalize the understanding of what happens when data changes? So you have to build models that use the data, that understand the data to start with. Mm -hmm. And you know, the famous thing about modeling, and I think we've all sat through a year of watching people come up with computer models and epidemiology studies, and you're thinking, um, what, am, what, am I, what am I witnessing here? Why are they looking at this rather than that? You know, suddenly everybody's an expert on data, except they're not. The people who work <laughs> with data, um, the people who work with data know from a statistician's point of view, you know, the, the, the famous uh, British statistician, George Box was famous for saying, or being quoted for the aphorism of saying, you know, uh, all models are wrong, but sometimes they're useful. Well, actually what he, what he said, what he was expressing was the idea is, we know that a model can't be perfect and can't represent the world, but if it, if it illuminates and guides us to understand something better, it's worth having. That's mm -hmm. really what modeling should be about. And that's what you do with data. You use data to model potential outcomes. And if you don't recognize that in a, in a world of interconnected data, that what you're modeling is a dynamic information set in a dynamic system environment, you're not replicating the real world that you want to create information about. Data is only information if it's contextualized and structured. Raw data is only worth its value that it perceived to be if it's plugging into a model that's being useful in illuminating your investment decision process. These are not situations that you turn around and say, oh, I've now got data, I can make a decision. Yeah. It's like, I've now got data, I can now be a more effective analyst of my investment decision yeah. because I've now got more insight, more visibility, yeah. Yeah. more frequency of data. And so a lot of what I work with is time series data. Mm -hmm. I create time series data from which I can then use signal analytics and signal processing techniques to understand distributions of risk and return. Because everything that you invest in has a potential return, otherwise you wouldn't invest in it. Yeah. And that's, an, that's another topic. Yeah. But if you've got something with a potential investment return, you also need to be able to measure or, or evaluate what's, what's my risk that I don't get that return? Yeah. What's my risk I end up with a loss? And, you know, so what's my best worst case scenario? Yeah. And I need to use information to create an idea around that. And I need to model that. So that's why I want data. I want data that gets me 
further down the line of understanding what's my opportunity cost of not investing in product A versus investing in product B. Mm-hmm. And this really works. Very, it's very important for equities because in the world of equities, there's no, there, there's no, there's no anchor. There's no redemption yield. I'm not going to get a redeem at par at the end of a bond. You know, I've got a yield to maturity mindset. If I'm, if I'm out of line with that yield to maturity, I can trade it. But basically, this thing is going to redeem at par. Mm-hmm. I know that end point. I don't know that end point with equities. So equity investment in particular requires you to be anticipating your future risk reward. That's where data should be helping. And the challenge I think most investment processes have is they're not using enough forward-looking data to make that judgment. Most investment processes have historically used realized returns data, past actual data, Mm -hmm. which they're saying, assuming it does in the future what it did in the past, these are my risks and rewards. But of course, we're not in that world anymore. Of course not. Because we're in the world of change that we've been talking about on, on the call so far. We, we, there's, there's change in potential outcomes that you can't, you can't look at 10 years or 20 years or 30 years of historic patterns of investment returns in markets that weren't open 20 years ago. Yeah. You can't use very long run data sets and say, we're going to predict it's going to be like this yeah. in the future yeah. in an emerging market environment, for example. So people say, oh, I can't invest in emerging markets because they're too risky because I can't model it. Yeah. Well, you can model it, but you have to do it in a different way. Yeah. And that's the change that we're now seeing um, and why using information intelligently is going to be the key to investment returns in the future. And it's simply not good enough to say this is what happened in the past. Yeah. I'm so glad you've said that because especially in this age of abundance of information and technology, if you're a chief investment officer sitting somewhere in Mayfair, trying to analyze the complex world. Depending on your resources, you may be able to develop these technologies in-house or you need to you know, source them elsewhere. And you need to know exactly how these data... First of all, you need to have an open mind in, in showing how the, 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 these new technologies and these new data points can help you and be open-minded to that and not be risk-averse to that. And also when you do adopt them, you need to, you need to really jump in and understand them fully as opposed to just having them there as a place to reference your main ideology of how the world works using this data to back up your thesis. It needs to be integrated into your thought process holistically. But this becomes very difficult, especially with new, well, I won't say new, but uh, revamping investment um, uh, trends like ESG because ESG is something that has taken the investing world by storm. And we see many firms now having ESG, having ESG investment vehicles for those who care about it. And I've spoke to many chief investment officers and other um, market participants about this, and they all have very different views on the value and the viability of ESG. But it always comes down to something which they, they, they always get stuck on or that they always wish there was a better answer for. And that is the metrics that are used to calculate the ESG worthiness, I guess, of a company. And each data provider has such different measures of how to do this. And this is something we mentioned that we spoke about deeply in one of our white papers. How would you, if you were tackling firms who care about ESG, 
because the the philosophy of why ESG is important, how that's actually measured and how that's implemented in the real world, they're all different conversations. But coming into the metrics of ESG, we have so many different uh, metrics providers that all have different ways of measuring ESG, which I think takes away from the confidence and the value of ESG investing. Which one of these measures do you use? How would you describe to someone wanting to invest in ESG, but seeing all these different options are unsure of how to approach it and which measure to use because reports have come out even quite recently that say that almost half of investors don't believe that they can they they have the tools to actually make uh confident ESG investing decisions maybe because it's we're in such a new stage of formalizing ESG that eventually, hopefully, we will have a much more standard measure. But what would you say to an investor who cares about ESG, but is but are just frustrated at the amount of measures out there and they don't know where to start? Well, I think the first thing to remember about ESG is it's taken the investment world by storm in the way that Smart Beta took the investment world by storm. Mm. This is this is a driven political marketing message that captures people's imagination in an area where the financial institutions traditionally operate, which is how do I separate the client from his money to my benefit and present it as being to his benefit. Now, historically, the fund manager gave you the returns and you didn't bother looking too much at what the fee he was charging was because, you know, that was that was the process. ESG is occurring as a theme at a time when it's never been easier to access investment opportunities. What I mean mm. by that is you can go onto your smartphone, you can go onto your computer tablet, you can go onto um, a, a, a phone line and, and literally within 10 minutes, you can set up an ISO, you can set up an investment vehicle through which you then say, and I'd now like to invest in this way. Yeah. The average investor doesn't know when to buy a stock on the retail side, the average investor doesn't know when to buy a stock and certainly doesn't know when to sell a stock unless somebody tells them. Most people take the guidance. They might read it online. They might read it on a, on a, on a Wall Street Bets account. They might, who knows where they're going to get their decision-making information. But the idea of ESG is actually it's about saying, I want to select from a group of stocks that meet certain criteria, however ethical you want to, to categorize that. It is not something where you can easily evaluate how, you know, how good or bad your ESG score is to determine how good or bad a return you're going to get as an investor. So the ESG information data is part of your investment process. And we shouldn't treat it as the investment process in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I would look at ESG and say, for example, the S&P 500 has a an ESG S&P 500 equivalent, and it tracks the S&P and it slightly outperforms it. People go, oh, good, I can invest in that. What you're really doing here is investing in 300 instead of 500 stocks. And how do they get those 300? Well, once you've thrown out a few defense contractors and tobacco companies and oil stocks, the big challenge you've got is that the oil sector is the easy winner for not being invested in in ESG. And a lot of people invested in heavily in tech and not invested in oil, that's been a good result. Except now, you know, Chevron's giving you a 5% yield and it's still making huge cash flow generations. And at the other end of the spectrum, everybody in the ESG was investing in Tesla who doesn't really make any money. Right. So 
you're now seeing people say, oh, well, I'm not going to invest in Tesla because um, Elon Musk has now just bought some Bitcoin and Bitcoin isn't ESG. So I can justify dropping Tesla from my ESG fund because it's not really ESG after all. And you start thinking to yourself, are we now beginning to justify what we want as ESG mm. to protect our investment returns? Um, or are we really saying ESG is one of the decision-making factors about investing in companies that should otherwise give me a return? Mm. So my approach to ESG is to say, look, it's absolutely correct that you can make a judgment. Do you want to have ESG stocks? Fine. There's plenty of stocks that can fit into that category, but you can also make a decision you know, is it E, is it S, or is it G? These are, you know, these are just bundled together, yeah. actually, as much as a marketing pitch as anything else. But by bundling those signals together, there's very little evidence that you can evaluate and then determine that these give a better investment return over and above the fact that they're all stocks everybody's buying. Mm. You know, oh, I'm buying Amazon because it's, it's in the ESG category. Never mind that home delivery service is probably creating huge demands for fossil fuels and yeah. uh, delivery costs and bad for the air pollution and all that stuff. You know, what's your ESG criterion really about? Ultimately, investors are about getting a return on their money. Hmm. And ESG has not had to answer that question for a while because it's, it's had this tech bias and anti-oil stock bias, uh, energy stock bias. But now you see those big oil companies making their big investments in green energy. Are they really the bad guys anymore? Well, we're going to start seeing people saying, oh, yes, we're allowing Shell in our ESG because its, it's environment policies are so much better than the competition. So we're going to have one oil stock. Well, then we're going to have two. And you're going to start running out of reasons as to why ESG underperforms yeah. if you've got this switch to more value-orientated investments that's going yeah. on right now. Yeah. People investing in banks, banks aren't in your ESG universe because banks are bad, you know, but actually now banks have lots of, you know, uh, board members who are you know, meeting the right criteria. And so they're now meeting an ESG criteria. So if it starts to become this kind of movable feast to justify investment, it just becomes another investment theme, which, yeah, it's data, it's information, but I still want to make a proper evaluation of the thing that really counts when I'm yeah. an investor, which is, what does it future cash flow look like as an asset? Hmm. What does that expected return I have putting my money in that asset? And this is becoming, you know, full circle back to how you invest in any asset class globally is I have to take a judgment on what I'm expecting to get as a return mm -hmm. and what risk I'm taking in making that decision. Mm -hmm. Now, if I make a decision to invest in something that suddenly everybody's going to sell, because they've decided it's not ethical or not acceptable and there's big liquidity outflows well that should be part of my investment decision in the first place what's my risk that people will now decide that they're not going to own tesla because they bought bitcoin hmm. would you have thought that that would that announcement by elon musk that he's buying bitcoin would that have precipitated the sell-off well it didn't but you sure as Sure as you like, some will do an analysis of the data set and say, oh, look, the very day that he announced that was the top in Tesla, therefore, it's an ESG story and therefore there's a correlation. Yeah. Well, no, there's a whole bunch of reasons, not least which the ARK fund having such a huge exposure and having gone from 4 billion to 40 billion in a very short period of time and being forced to buy Tesla. 
some of the unwinding that comes associated with those liquidity situations can also be correlated. And, it, and so your data point and this ESG point come together and say, at the end of the day, every investment decision comes down to understand the information that the market has about a company or about an asset and recognize that the market's putting a price on that information, putting a valuation on that information today. And if the information changes, it's quite likely that the price will change. Our job as advisors and analysts and observers is to work out how significant or otherwise that information is, mm -hmm. to work out what that then means for the price of that information change impacting on that asset. And the one thing that I really focus on, as sort of almost the USP for what I do, is to look at the the idea of why price share prices in equities, why are share prices moving? Um, and momentum is not, price momentum is not just about it's going up because it's gone up. Yeah. It's going up because the market's got a different view than it had the previous day um, about what that trade-off between price and, and information is. Mm -hmm. and if that information is changing, the price will continue to change. And you move from one equilibrium of price versus value to another mm -hmm. equilibrium of price versus value. And during that period of time, share prices trend. Mm -hmm. and that's really what you're investing in if you're a momentum investor. Mm -hmm. And that's what you need to understand, not just to sit back and watch it and say, I'm buying Facebook because it's gone up for the last 11 months. Mm -hmm. So I'm still buying it. That's not a good enough reason to buy it anymore. Mm -hmm. That's something you did if you didn't have information about Facebook and you observed it as you know, AN other investment instrument. Yeah. But when you know that the information flow you have about any of these tech companies is being reassessed and reevaluated by the marginal investor in Facebook or Amazon or whatever it happens to be all the time, mm -hmm. understanding that information set is updating every day, every week, every month. If the rate of change of that outlook changes, if my expected return changes, in other words, then the price projection is going to change yeah that's what we have to understand we have to be forward looking in our information analysis not rearward looking we have to be anticipating that what is currently the status quo may very well change and if it does change we want to be able to anticipate that early we want to be able to observe it early we want to be able to react to it early and then when that change is finished then there's another decision point to be made and this is why more active management is probably coming back uh, to markets because mm. it's not enough just to buy your ESG basket and watch it all go up. At some point, these decisions about what is and isn't in that basket start to change, returns change. So the ABC ESG basket versus the XYZ ESG basket, you know, one outperforms the other and people start saying, which is the better ESG? Yeah. And they're then selecting on the basis of assuming the ESG decision has been taken and they want to take the decision that says, get me the one that gets me the return I'm looking for mm -hmm. in a better, more visible way while still meeting the ESG criterion. Yeah. That takes us back to active investment management. That takes us away from just buy everything in ESG and hold it forever to saying some ESG stocks will give you a better return than others over an investment time horizon that's what an active manager's skill set is supposed to be. Yeah. So taking us back to information and understanding how data around ESG should be used, yeah. 
really I see ESG as primarily a, a sort of a pre-selection universe process. I'm happy to have any stock of these 100, 200, 500 stocks. The point I was referencing earlier about the S&P 500 taking it down to 300, the way that they skinned that list down was um, ultimately by selecting not just on ESG compatibility, but by only selecting a certain percentage in terms of market size. So they're, they're slimming it down on market cap. It's like, well, what's that got to do with ESG? But that was just a means of achieving a list. Now, you could select on ESG and market cap and come up with a list. Or yeah. you could select on ESG and um, liquidity or ESG and market uh, exposure to uh, third-party demand. So, yeah. for example, I only want ESG stocks that also have large demand exposure to emerging Asia or mm. to the Americas, whichever one you want to select. But this is just a universe selection process. You still have to make your investment decision on good old-fashioned investment grounds. What are its cash flows? What are the risks to those cash flows? Yeah. What am I expecting to get by holding this asset over that investment horizon? Mm. That is where ESG ultimately is going to plug back into an investment world longer term. It's going to be about saying any company can look at the criteria and meet the ESG criteria pretty much unless they're an arms manufacturer, mm. in which case they don't care. Yeah. Um, but outside of that, any company that can basically meet the ESG criterion can meet ESG criterion by you know following a set of guidelines. Mm. Doesn't make them a good company. Yeah. For to, that's true. as an investor, you know that doesn't determine what's good or bad. What determines what's good or bad as an investor is how well the company is managed, how well it generates returns on its capital, and whether you want to be a shareholder in that business. There's a lot to consider with that, Chris, and I'm glad you gave such a thorough answer because there's so many aspects of obviously that are still yet to be agreed upon by all market participants and it's well, an innovation. You you, sorry, all market participants don't have to agree. That's mm. the whole point. Mm. You make your investment decision based on the fact that not everybody agrees mm. because that's how, you know, if the market is pricing an asset differently to you mm. and your view is ultimately based on an outcome that you and see realized through the reports and the numbers, you make that return, you make that excess return. Yeah. So the market doesn't have to agree on these criteria. That's a political decision. Mm -hmm. And this is part of the bigger problem we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. The market doesn't need to agree that ESG is good or bad. The market has to recognize that it is a selection criteria and that other investors are using in the market. And therefore every investor has the opportunity to be exposed or otherwise to that price influence and that's really what it comes down to mm -hmm. you you're making a decision not because you're trying to use your investment money to make the world a better place i mean that's you know that's that's naive yeah political yeah. rhetoric the truth is the world is a better place because people are more responsible for the world that they're living in and as a consequence those people will tend to do better mm -hmm. because of it mm -hmm. but you can still have people with all the ethical principles in the world who make a complete mess of an investment business. You can say so that again. Make a complete mess of a, a, of a corporation because they're so driven to prove one set of criteria and they lose sight of actually what the business is about in the first place. Mm -hmm. And this is why, you know, the, the price setting mechanism of the capital market 
needs to be um, uh, needs to be respected because at the end of the day, you know, you do get fraud. Of course you do. And you will get fraud in reporting associated with ESG. You know, you're going to get emerging market and frontier market companies that appear to meet all the ESG criteria. And in the background, there's, there's fraud going on or there's corruption going on or there's payoffs going on or, you know. Everything under the sun. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's really interesting. And to wrap it up now, Chris, what would you leave as a final thought in this podcast? Something that you think if you were, if, if an investor listening to, to this would take away, what would be your main message for, for investors coming into 2021? We're sort of at the end of, of, of the first quarter almost now and COVID is still in the air. Um, it seems to be uh, by different... Uh, market participants valuations that we are you know there's a big bubble in the market you know you know prices don't reflect fundamental value and we have the rise of retail investors using all kinds of different applications to be market participants in their own way and we've seen the repercussions of this in the past with GameStop with all of these things happening what are what would be a couple of things that you would encourage an investor to keep in mind or to focus on as 2021 continues uh, to progress? Well, you, you've, you've wrapped up a lot of things in that question. Um, the, uh, and I think it's always about keeping sight of what you're trying to achieve. Uh, when you talk about markets being overvalued, when you talk about stocks separating fundamentals, why, why, why do you think that? Why does one think that things are too expensive? Mainly people say things are too expensive because they don't own it mm-hmm. and it's going up. They're the people that will tell you loudest how terribly overvalued and how much of a bubble it is. Mm-hmm. People who are in it don't tell you that. So the louder the message is that people are telling you that, the more likely it is that it's not going to end. Mm-hmm. And the, the one thing to remember here is we've seen a shift with COVID whereby policy making in the west has fundamentally gone from being driven through monetary control to now being driven through fiscal drivers this isn't going to go away everybody out there in the macro world is saying yes inflation is coming yes inflation is coming but inflation is coming because that liquidity is being put into the system via fiscal drivers not Mm -hmm. via monetary drivers Mm -hmm. it also means by the way that monetary drivers monetary control is not going to be used to stop that inflation. So the idea that the long end of the bank of uh, the bond curve is backing up, which suddenly is driving all these models that are saying, oh, look, bond yields are now going up, which means that equities now are being have to be discounted at a higher rate because the long bonds gone back up. So therefore, equities are expensive and you have to sell growth stocks it's like, well, you're buying value stocks mm-hmm. because your model says that there's going to be a monetary response. Mm-hmm. And that that discount rate the market should apply has to be higher than it was. Well, your model is now telling you something that the economics isn't telling you. The model is telling you that if you've got $1,400 stimulus checks being pushed back into the system in the United States, if you've got interest rates at zero at the short end in the United States, this is supposed to be a good environment to be buying financial stocks? Or do you think that money is going to be spent on growth stocks 
what I mean by growth stocks is, is that money going to flow through to tech businesses, tech companies? Where's the money going to get spent? Hmm. Um, it's not going to get spent on value stocks returns. So the idea that there's a natural economic correlation that we've seen in the past going to the future only works if you assume that the policy response to inflation is going to be seeing a tightening in interest rates by the authorities, only that the interest rates are going to be pulling back the money supply through monetary means. Well, not if the fiscal authorities are stimulating. So pay attention to where the real world flows of capital are going and understand that the world is about giving you returns on where revenue is being generated. Mm -hmm. It's not giving you returns on what a theoretical quant model says, not mm. over any, any long-term horizon. And the quant models that are out there that are built on historic data sets have got it wrong time and again, and that's primarily because they're not forward-looking. Investors have to be forward-looking. You have to make a decision if you've got stimulus checks coming across the US, you've got large fiscal expenditure happening in Europe, you've got infrastructure spending happening, where am I going to be making my returns? I'm going to be making my returns as a consequence of those economic uh, developments and evolutions. Back to Japan. Japan's integration with China means that Japan becomes a far more interesting market for global investors than they've, than they've noticed. It's been doing very well, by the way, in the last uh, you know, two or three years. Mm -hmm. It's been doing extremely well. But the market has to sit up and take notice of the fact that investment returns are coming to investment opportunities because of where liquidity is flowing and, and demand and returns are being generated. Yeah. That's what you have to invest in. Not, not a headline, not a story, not an old-fashioned backward-looking uh, investment model, not a following of a of a, an index basket, you're making your returns because capital is incredibly cheap and it's being allocated by both the market and by government fiscal decision-making. Yeah. I mean, capital flows to get returns. That's what you want to be part of. Mm -hmm. And that's what you have to hang on to in 2021, 2022, because interest rates aren't going up in the West anytime soon. Mm. If the yield curve goes up at the back end, that's going to be a problem ultimately for governments who are trying to fund themselves. Mm -hmm. So yield curve suppression is going to be a policy for some time to come. Excess liquidity is coming to the markets. Real, real asset returns, whether it's through equity, through property, um, or through um, physical, you know, access to physical uh, return uh, instruments, however that may be, cash flows, cash flows, yeah. cash flows, cash flows. Yeah. That would be the thing I would make sure people think about when you're making an investment. If this thing doesn't have cash flows, why am I investing it? Yeah. And once you've taken that decision, it doesn't yeah. matter how many ESG points it gets, that's not a good decision for you to make as an investor yeah. if you want to get a return on your money. Yeah, that's a good point to end on. And Chris, finally, if people want to get into contact with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? I know you have a, a LinkedIn page. What would you recommend for anyone listening to this if they want to learn more about what you do, your, your services and your firm? How would they get into contact? Well, we have, I, I've, I'm on LinkedIn, as you mentioned. I've also uh, 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 Libra Apollo, libra-apollo.com is, is the website. There's an information page. You can contact us through that. Just you know, dr drop a line to, to info uh, at libraapollo.com um, or libra-is.com. Um, I'm very happy to sort of engage. 
just bear in mind that we are uh, FCA regulated for institutional advice, so I'm not talking directly to retail. Um, that that aside, you know, I'm always happy to engage in conversations that are interesting for people. Right. So, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Chris Tinker, uh, founding partner of Libra Investment Services. Thank you so much. Thank you.